Good afternoon, everyone. It is Dr. Nigro again with our next episode of Psychology Unplugged. Uh, as always, it's kind of the highlight of my week or the beginning of the week. Um, getting a chance to come into your homes and your lives and impart whatever wisdom that myself or Julie has to share. Um, this has been a very humbling experience for me doing this. Uh, never thought it would grow to the level and degree to which it has, and uh, just completely blessed and, and blown away by how far people travel um, great distances internationally f for consultations with me or for me to do full neuropsych evaluation. So from the bottom of my heart, a, a deep uh, gratitude, um, and I can't say enough, uh, really look forward to doing this. And uh, we will do our best to eliminate the chopping in the background. Um, so I think Julie's somewhere else, so she'll be quiet for a while unless she decides to pop on. Um, so I'm slowly figuring out Instagram. I will give you guys contact information how to get a hold of me. Um, so today's topic, uh, we're going to focus on a problematic coping strategies. Um, you know, coping is uh, a pretty broad term, but it's something that all of us do, whether it's adaptive or maladaptive, uh, to buffer ourselves against the difficult things that come to us in life, uh, life experiences, and whether that's depression, the loss of a loved one, um, a failed marriage, anxiety, uh, anticipation. So you know, we have there. There are adaptive ways to cope, like exercise and meditation, and you know, progressive muscle relaxation. Um, but I'm going to go through. I've made again. This may be the fifth episode. I think I made some notes. Um, I don't know where I was, but I made notes actually. The hard part's gonna be gonna be if I can actually read my writing, which is a problem. But I wanted to share something with you that I came across. I mean, I I, I think I gave this to my mother. I'm not a hoarder, but I have every book that I've ever had in, in, in undergrad and grad school, my doctoral program. Uh I I read textbooks. Um that's kind of my leisure. Um so I and I have all my stuff from uh, throughout my education, but I came across something and I posted this on our Instagram page, and I, I thought it was worth sharing to uh, you know the large audience we have on on our podcast. And this was something written by um, uh, William Hersey Davis, and I, I think it it, it kind of I think segues into a little bit of the topic I chose for this week. It's called reputation and character. Uh, the circumstances amid which you live determine your reputation. The truth you believe determines your character. Reputation is what you are supposed to be. Character is who you are and what you are. Reputation is the photograph. Character is the face. Reputation comes, from, from, comes over from one without. Character grows up. From within. Reputation is what you have when you come to a new community. Character is what you have when you go away. Your reputation is learned in an hour. Your character, character does not come to light for a year. Reputation is made in a moment. Character is built in a lifetime. Reputation grows like a mushroom. Character grows like the oak. A single newspaper report gives you your reputation gives you your reputation. 
A life of toil gives you character. Reputation makes you rich or makes you poor. Character makes you happy or makes you miserable. Reputation is what men say about you on your tombstone. Character is what angels say about you before the throne of God. So just wanted to share that with you. Like I said, I posted that on Instagram. I don't know how I came across it. I was looking for something, obviously, somewhere one of my binders. Uh, but I think it's a really, really great um, distinction between character and reputation. Obviously, the point I think he was trying to make is that character is significantly much more important than reputation. And, you know, I've talked about this before, like you know, when, when you – you ask somebody, you meet somebody for the first time, one of the first three questions I think that invariably comes up is what do you do for a living? And a lot of us, our, our identities are very much tied to what you do for a living um, or what we do for a living and the professions and the crafts that we, we have chosen to pursue. So, um, you know, if you go on our Instagram page, I'll give you the, the link later. Uh, definitely check it out. Um, I think it's, you know, reading it a few times, I think really kind of hits home about you know, who are we at the end of the day? Have we made good choices uh, for ourselves, for the people in our lives, our loved ones, uh, strangers? Um, and character is is what is what is what our legacy is. Um, not how much we have in the bank, um, but I think you know, really, the mark that we've left, hopefully, a positive one on people's lives and the world in general. Um, <clears throat> All right, so let's go through some of these uh, problematic coping strategies. Number one, complaining. This is complaining about your ambivalence that is going to alienate people around you and keep you. It's going to keep keep you stuck in the negative. Uh, how can that help anyone? Uh, I think I'm sure you, whether it's yourself or you, have friends or neighbors or coworkers who complain about everything. Nothing is good enough. They complain about their spouse, complain about the weather, complain about their job, complain about their car, complain about their boss, complain about their bank account, complain about their health. Uh, these these people can be considered energy vampires. They complain, but they just they it, it, they do alienate people around you because you know I I tell people like that I've done therapy with you get to complain once and you don't get to complain again if you if you you have not done anything to take proactive steps to make progress in changing that whether that be a mindset a behavior again progress not perfection. Uh, but complaining really does leave leave us stuck. And, you know, if, if you're in a room with somebody who, who's complaining and they have an audience, they're just going to keep going on and on and on. But if everybody left the room, I don't think they're going to keep talking because that behavior no longer serves a purpose. Um, but again, these, these complainers are energy vampires. We do have a right to complain, but I don't think we have a right to, to continually complain and not take any action, independent of what the outcome may be. You know, you complain about the, the, the politics or the process, and maybe you don't like the results that come out of, of an election or, or whatever, but you at least took an active approach and said, hey, I did my part. Um, so complaining is definitely a way to remain stuck. Um, whatever right here. Uh, collecting more and more information. Um, now, this kind of makes sense at first, but it also... But you also might be biased in the information that, that we collect, uh, like trying to prove our point to eliminate our ambivalence. Uh, and when do you know you have enough information? You know, I think this could also relate somewhat um, 
you know, I put it on later, but to, to procrastinating. But some people are constantly looking for reassurance or guidance or more information before they want to make a decision or they want to change. And I think it really kind of relates to a, a, um, a justifiable pause. So I need more information. I need to talk to this person or I need to talk to that person or I need to go back and ask my parents about this in my life or whatever. So, I mean, again, when is enough? When do you, when do you have enough information? Um, that again, this is another way to keep you stuck. Uh, uh, number three, in terms of a problematic coping strategy, is always focusing on the negative and discounting positives. This, this is going to lead us to overlook good things that we already have. Um, you know, we focus so much on the problematic things, what our bank account is, the kind of car we drive, the boss we have, say similar things I, I, I've mentioned before. Um, Focusing on the negative is is emotionally draining, I think, for ourselves and is emotionally draining for the people that we are um, talking to or in relationship with, you know, like, like, like Debbie Downer, this, this is like Eeyore uh, or dysthymia, persistent depressive disorder, which is the new terminology for, for that, which is like a long-standing depression, uh, depressed, uh, depressive episode, kind of almost we don't have it, but kind of like a, de a depressive personality disorder, which I think we sh should have in the diagnostic manual. Um, but always focusing on the negative and discounting the positives. Um, you know, I've used this example before about the guy where the priest tells him, you know, write down all the things that you're grateful for. He can't think of anything. He starts listing off, oh, sorry, your wife died and you lost your job. Like, what are you talking about until he finally gets the point of like, hey, I do have a lot to be grateful for. I think if we just stop and, 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 and take stock... You know, that we have money to buy groceries, that we can pay our water bill, that we, and people are like, well, these, these are common things, yeah. But do we ever stop and, and, and acknowledge and reflect and give God gratitude and be thankful for the simple things, for the air that we're able to breathe, that we have a television to be able to turn on, that we have AC for the summer and heat for the winter, things that we walk past day by day by day. Uh, just like I looked at the thermostat, in the hallway here, and I'm like, thank you, God, for allowing us to be able to have heat and, and, and AC. Uh, you know, the, the lights in our house, the food in our refrigerator, the, the, the ovens that we have, the, 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 the books that we have, the, uh, our faith. I mean, it can be tangible things, it can be intangible things. And I think it's a, it's a good grounding technique to bring us back to a place of, you know, I, maybe I don't have it so bad. Because... Ever, somebody always has a worse and somebody will always have a better. And, you know, bigger houses don't mean better lives. And bigger cars don't mean better personalities. Uh, and I think we have to move away from kind of constantly comparing ourselves and our socioeconomic status and the towns that we live in and the cars that we drive and, 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 and the name brands that, that we wear. Um, I know Julie really likes... Um, this Sada Guru, uh, he did a great episode um, with this kid who was in the audience um, where he's speaking, and I've really kind of taken to him. I think he's a, a really, really wise individual. Um, we'll, we'll try and post a link to have you guys follow him. Um, but he's talking to this kid who's wearing a Reebok shirt, and he asked the kid to stand up. He's like, why are, you, why are you doing free advertising for this company? You know, why are you walking around? You know, you don't get paid for this. Why do you do this? <coughs> it was a really good uh, exercise. And he, the thing, thing about him is he doesn't really have any ethics. So it was just, I kind of always wonder, like, where he's going with this stuff. But I think taking stock of just the, the, the small, simple, simple things that we have when we wake up in the morning. And um, what, what he says is wake up every morning and smile for 20 seconds. Just 20 seconds smile. 
And, you know, God gives us the grace for today. He doesn't give us the grace for tomorrow and be grateful and go out in the world and try to do the best we can with what we have and, and continue to strive for more for the right reasons. Um, okay, number four in terms of problematic coping strategies, seeking reassurance. Now, this works for a few minutes, but it's not going to eliminate mixed feelings. Um, reassurance doesn't change reality. Uh, even though someone assures us of something positive, such as you'll love that person, it doesn't mean that you, the negative feelings won't return. Reassurance only feeds into the idea that you need to eliminate ambivalence rather than own it or live with it and normalize it. So, so reassurance, I mean, think about we constantly want to, uh, this word kind of gets gossipy where we constantly want to re, have reassurance that um, I'm right and the other person is wrong. And I think there's a fundamental human tendency to, to do this. So it, I think, I don't know if it's preservation of the ego or something deeper or something lighter, uh, but constantly seeking reassurance, um, you know, I think is exhausting for the individual because they can become almost psychologically paralyzed to make a decision in their life about what they want to do, um, whether that's something they want to, yeah, be, I want to date this person, they have to talk to 20 of their friends to get their advice, or they want to purchase this car, or they want to maybe get a divorce. I mean, you know, I think the, the human psyche is, is pretty resilient, and the other term is called psychological hardiness for, for resiliency, um, but constantly seeking reassurance can be exhausting to the people in your lives if you are someone who constantly needs reassurance. Now, all of us like to be reassured that, that we're, we're, we're a good person or a hard worker or good-looking or, or, or knowledgeable and, and, and talented, but to, to, the, to the extreme, and I'm sure you could probably think of somebody in your life, or if not yourself, that constantly needs reassurance. And after a while, it's like, how much more do you need? Almost back to the one I said before about uh, collecting more and more information. Like, how, what, when is it ever enough? When is it ever enough? And, and I think this is a very problematic coping mechanism because this is, again, relying on other people to validate our, our, our thought processes, the behaviors that we may decide to embark on or enact, the career choices that we need. The world is not always going to agree with us or parents are not always going to agree with us or spouses or whatever. I mean, as long as your choices are, you know, uh, you know appropriate and socially acceptable, I mean, own your stuff, own your thoughts, whether good, bad, negative, right, wrong, indifferent, healthy, and unhealthy, maladaptive, adaptive, own them. And, 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 and I think if we can stop putting all this pressure on ourselves to get the external world to validate what we believe, uh, it can be very liberating. Um, number five, ruminating. Ruminating about the future will not eliminate ambivalence. It will only make you depressed and anxious which makes it even harder to accept ambivalence. So ambivalence is a huge part of coping because in order to, when you cope, you're trying to maintain a, a psychological equilibrium that may seem out of whack, but you're coping with amb ambivalence. And it's, that's a very hard space to be in, but being ambivalent is also a really crucial variable in, in change from a cognitive behavioral perspective. Now, most of us like clear-cut answers, good, bad, right, wrong, left, right, all, all these different types of, you know, black and white dichotomous or dichotomies. But, you know, ruminating uh, can lead to, you know, you can see it in like a, a OCD, you see it in depression, you see it in, in bipolarity with, with like racing thoughts, um, in, in, in mania or hypermania, but, but, but ruminating is just going to keep, it, it's not going to eliminate the ambivalence. 
and, and coping in and of itself is about tolerating ambivalence, about not knowing the outcome, but being sure-footed in the belief systems that you have, the emotions that you have, uh, accepting, your, you know, and acknowledging your, your strength, acknowledging your failures, and continually accepting that we are all a work in progress. Um, and next to number six, in addition to ruminating, is worrying. Worrying that you're going to make the wrong decision. It could be driven by your belief that if if that that, that the worry uh, you're going to prepare for the worst, uh, but you, we li- end up living in this hypothetical world that may never actually exist, and it it and the irony is it's, it's always a, it's always a negative world. It, 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 and chronic worry leads to depression. Worry, worry, worry. We all worry. Julie is a classic worrier. I think she's mentioned this before. I worry. I mean, we worry about different things. Um, but when you, t- when you take a step back, how does worrying change a situation? And remember, coping mechanisms are a way for us to stay in the situation where there's ambivalence. These are the problematic coping mechanisms. So say, okay, I'm feeling anxious. A more adaptive one would be, all right, I'm going to just take, you know, do um, some deep breathing or practice mindfulness. That's a much more adaptive coping mechanism than worrying. And all of us worry. We worry about the future. We, we, we worry about our kids. We worry about our parents. We worry about our siblings. We worry about our bank accounts. We worry about the weather, climate change. We worry about the war, you know, the war in Ukraine. Is there going to be a nuclear war? There, there's, there are plenty of things. There, there's no shortage of things to worry about. But I would really give you, and this is something that I, I work with people, and it's a cognitive behavioral technique. But if you are somebody who is a chronic worrier and you're constantly feeling that your life is derailed by this sense of, uh, of, of dread and doom, I've told people, pick 30 minutes a day, that doesn't matter what time it is, say 4 to 4.30. That is, you are allowed to worry between 4 and 4.30. You are not allowed to worry... Before four o'clock, it'd be three fifty-nine. Not allowed to worry. Once it you're not once it hits four thirty-one, you are no longer allowed to worry. This is a very effective technique because it allows the person, even though it's not adaptive, it allows the person to still have that time to worry. But it, it it's, this also works for other things as well. But just compartmentalizing it's like thirty minutes, and then you're going to find that you're not really using that thirty minutes. It goes down to twenty-five. And it goes down to twenty and fifteen. But you're, you're you're taking this big like I worry all the time, and you're kind of bringing it all back together into this little microcosm, and <clears throat> so you're giving the person the permission to worry, but you're not allowing them to have twenty-four hour access to their mind about worrying. But it it, it only will create uh, depression and, and perpetuate anxiety, and it really serves no purpose. It, it it's really mental masturbation without any kind of outcome at the end. Um, Okay, I mentioned this, get to this one, number seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, okay, seven. Procrastinating. This is putting off decisions that keep you frozen in ambivalence. And it feeds into this perfectionistic idea that you cannot make a decision if you have mixed feelings. Um, decisions are about recognizing you have mixed feelings uh, but deciding to step forward anyway. So procrastinating is, is I think, something a lot of people do. Uh, a lot of people with ADHD procrastinate. Uh, procrastinating is, again, a maladaptive coping mechanism um, because it, you know, you, pretty clear when people procrastinate, they know what's, what's expected of them. You know, you procrastinate with a school project. You procrastinate with... Uh, 
paying your bills. I mean, eventually that's going to catch up to people. And that's, that's going to cause a whole set of worries because when you procrastinate, you generally know what, what, what the expectation is. You're going to be taking a final exam in six weeks or you're going to, you know, your water bill is due in 30 days. Whatever, whatever it might be, uh, procrastinating really serves no purpose except to keep you in that ambivalence, which will just keep you in a state of anxiety and angst. Uh, the last one I think I have here is hedging your bets. Um, this is one that, that really leads to minimizing, uh, your true capability, capability and sabotaging your potential. Um, if you have one foot in, one foot out, you're going to, you're going to minimize your effectiveness. So hedging your bets is taking, taking the path of least resistance, uh, you know, I'm, eh, you know, I don't know if I should apply for that job. You know, it's going to be, I don't think I'm going to, I'm good enough. Um, so I may maybe settle for something less. And maybe these messages come from early on in childhood from, from, from negative parents who spoke words of discouragement and, and, you know, you weren't going to be successful or you're never going to get married. And sometimes you see this with people with like eating disorders. And so I think hedging your bets can come from the early messages that people have received from significant individuals in their lives who have you know, kind of like permeated their psyche and made them second guess their capabilities. Um, and, the, and, the, and the goal of, you know, working with, with, with patients is, is really to, you know, if you look maybe like, yes, it's cognitive behavior, but more existential is bringing out, you know, the true essence and, 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 and wonder and awe of, of, of individuals because we are all capable of many different things and we're, we we have different talents in different areas and I tell people all the time it doesn't matter my job is no important than anybody else's job it doesn't matter how many letters I have before and after my name I, I just do something different um, you know I do the when I do an episode on intelligence I talk like multiple intelligence and I think Howard Gardner's model really does a really he does a really good job of of you know um, breaking down the different types of intelligences, um, you know, where we get so fixated on this, you know, full-scale IQ. So I just wanted to do this episode um, because I know I've talked about coping mechanisms in the past and in, in mental health, um, you know, ambivalence is a, a, a big thing. Um, it, it, it's really an albatross that can be paralyzing. And, you know, the, the eight uh, things I wrote down for, for problematic coping mechanisms are really ones I think none of us are immune to doing and sliding into. I think it, I think it becomes really problematic when we get stuck in the and these the, the, these become our our, our treadmarks. Um, and it's almost like if you if you live in a colder climate, you'll get the reference. You know, if you're in you know get a big snowfall and your car's stuck in the snow and the wheels are just spinning. Yeah, the car, the car is technically moving, but it's going nowhere. And that's what these negative, these problematic coping mechanisms are, is you're spinning your wheels, but, but you're really going nowhere. And you're still in your driveway, but you're pressing the gas. And you're going, trying to go back and trying to go forward, trying to go back, trying to go forward. Uh, fortunately, we do that. I have a big SUV, so we're not doesn't bother us too much but i remember the days when i had uh you know a sports car and you know stuck and like oh this is awful and uh that's kind of the you know metaphor for getting stuck in the in these negative unhealthy and, and, and maladaptive mindsets so uh hopefully this was effective and informative i don't think julie is going to jump on i don't know where she is uh but uh i think we had some silence during this episode uh more so than in the past so i appreciate all of your comments and feedback 
and thank you for joining us on this ride and this journey to legitimize mental health, destigmatize mental health, instill a sense of hope. Um, Jill and I are truly grateful for allowing you guys allowing us into your lives. Uh, you know the the comments. I figured out how to read comments now on on Facebook and and and, and the the truly uh, humbling um, the. Uh, or Instagram, sorry. Oh, there's Julie. I heard her yell. Um, truly humbled by the, the the kind words and and the appreciation. And you know, and I'm in the middle of the day, and I get a text from somebody saying, "Hey, I made my first therapy appointment." I mean that 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 makes doing what we do um, all the worthwhile. And we love talking to you guys in the, in, in the evenings. Um, uh, you know, like I said, we're not treating anybody individually but we're just trying to disseminate our collective knowledge because we're very fortunate to represent all the different disciplines within the field of psychology psychiatry from diagnostics whether that's psychological or neuropsychological and cognitive behavioral therapy or psychotherapy and psychotropic medications uh so we, we really appreciate um your feedback and keep sending me uh, ideas and topics uh I know a lot of the topics you guys have asked for, I can answer probably more on an individual basis. I don't know if I could talk for 30, 40 minutes on some of the questions that you guys have. Um, so if I haven't gotten your topic, you know, certainly reach out. Um, I know some there are a few people that wanted some on treatment of postpartum depression. So Julie uh, and I could probably do one on that. Um, thank you for all the comments on on the the sleep one last week. I think we may do a second one because I think there's other things that Julie wanted to talk about with regard to nightmares and different medications. So. I just wanted to do this one today because I think, you know, as we're getting into the season, at least, you know, holiday season is approaching, you know, in the Western Hemisphere, winter's approaching, it's daylight savings time, which I wish they would, I think they're getting rid of, I don't know what they had in the first place, uh, you gain an hour, you lose an hour, so um, anyhow, without rambling, um, so I definitely would encourage you to check out videos of Bruce Springsteen's new album, Only the Strong Survive. It's a great version of Night Shift by the Commodores. Um, Don't Play That Song For Me is another great video. Uh, until next time, feel free to reach out to me at Psychology Today. Uh, our Instagram page is psychology underscore unplugged underscore. Um, you can get a hold of me through email or psychology unplugged at outlook.com. You can contact directly me directly 617-750-9411 East Coast Standard Time in Duxbury, Massachusetts. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Be aware of your thoughts. Be aware of your actions. Um, be well, guys, and we will talk to you then. Bye.